Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 13th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Low pay in the Defence Forces has led to members being forced to claim supplementary welfare payments, sleep in their cars or leave for work in the private sector. In fact, more left the Defence Forces last year than could be recruited. Morale is said to be at an all-time low. The issue dominated dull business yesterday. A Fianna Fáil motion debated last night called for the restoration of military allowances, the restoration of the supplementary pension for newer recruits, and it also called for the establishment of a permanent and independent commission on pay for members of the Permanent Defence Forces. The response from government was no, no and no. The counter-motion seeks to give a more balanced presentation of the facts. Minister Kyo has already mentioned the increased levels of funding for defence that he has successfully secured. In terms of the issue of pay, as Minister Kyo has outlined, the Public Service Pay Commission has examined recruitment and retention issues in the defence sector and the government will decide the approach to this. The focus of pay increases under the Public Service Stability Agreement 2018-20 has rightly been those on lower pay. The agreement provides for increases in pay ranging from 6.2 to 7.4%. Increases due to date under the agreement have been paid to PDF personnel and further increases in pay are scheduled for later this year and next year. By the end of the current agreement, the pay scales of all public servants, including members of the Defence Forces, earning under 70,000 per annum, will be restored to pre-FIMPI levels. The restoration of the 5% reduction to allowances cut under FIMPI is also scheduled in the agreement. I note that the motion calls for the establishment of a permanent and independent Defence Forces pay body. In Ireland, pay policy is determined centrally by the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform have a regard to public sector pay agreements. The Government established the Independent Public Service Pay Commission to advise it on public service pay. I can confirm that there are no plans to institute separate pay bodies. Minister Jim Daly giving uh, the Government a response in uh, the Dáil uh, to the Fianna Fáil private members motion which was uh, sponsored uh, by Jack Chambers who who's a TD in Dublin West and on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. I think the response was clear, wasn't it? No, no, no. It was clear and it shows a government in denial and out of touch on a serious retention recruitment issue in our defence forces. I mean, the loyalty, commitment and dedication of those who serve 
at home and abroad is just being undermined. And I think um, if you look at the dysfunctional cycle of turnover, we're further away than ever from our white paper target of 9,500. We had 86 discharged from the Defence Forces in April. If you look at the trajectory of discharges, we're actually going to have uh, less in the Defence Forces in 12 months' time at the current rate of discharge. Uh, and that means, if you look at the actual effective strength of our Defence Forces, of our Air Corps, our, our Naval Service and our Army, it means their, their actual capability to conduct their basic duties is being fatally mm. undermined. But have we got the money to do this? I, I mean, we've agreed with Europe uh, to spend an additional £50 million, isn't it, on uh, the Defence Forces, but that, of course that'll go on guns and boats and planes. Uh, and the Taoiseach said yesterday that to uh, allow an increase of 2% across the board, across the public services, would amount to €360 million, Euros, so we don't have that money. And every other week, Fianna Fáil brings in one group or another in, looking for more money for them? No, well, just to say that defence spending compared to other departments um, is actually, if you read the uh, analysis from the finance division of the defence forces, it's actually uh, stagnant in real time when you compare it to GDP growth. Defence spending is completely stagnant. But under the PESCO agreement, we are obliged to increase defence for spending, are we not? Can I I just say, Mm. on on the Taoiseach's remarks, what he did, he tried to muddy the waters and broaden the debate out generally because it suited his narrative. The reality of it is we don't take, this is a choice of whether we want to have a defence forces or not. If you look at what mm. happened with the Gorse fire in Donegal and being able to man an Air Corps crew, it took a number of hours to actually achieve that. We had our naval ships docked last year in Cork because they couldn't conduct basic, basic duties. And the Chief of Staff, Vice Admiral Mark Mellet, has said on the record, mm. which is quite unusual mm. for a Chief of Staff, to say that they have huge difficulty filling leadership positions to fulfil our peacekeeping duties. And I'm not arguing that with you, Jack Chambers. I'm not arguing any of these points with you, but what I am saying to you is that the government's argument is that the money isn't there. In fact, uh, the government's argument is stronger than that. They're saying that the Defence Forces have already got their pay increases. No, they're they're wrong. Uh, And what we've actually proposed uh, is is quite a, a sensible and prudent approach in the context of overall pay policy. What we want is pre-FEMPI restoration of military allowances and we've actually outlined a mechanism to pay for that. Mm. If you look at the uh, return, the, the net return to the Exchequer and the return to the Exchequer um, over a period of years, nearly 100 million was returned over a five-year period from 2014 to 2018. And if you actually read military management's submission as part of the Public Pay Commission process, They've outlined that in the context of Vote 36, which is for pay and allowances, um, they, we should use the amount not uh, allocate, not utilised for pay, to, as a as a as a mechanism to increase allowances to actually retain our staff. Because what's happening here yeah. is the exodus is increasing, uh, the uh, tsunami is growing of people leaving our defence forces, which means two things happen: they're, they're going to have to, it, they ca- we can't recruit our way out of this but also that the cost of recruitment rises, but also the cost of pensions rise. So instead mm. of trying to keep people actually in our defence forces and keep the morale and to move, move us away from the cliff edge, you have a pension liability when people are actually discharged. So it's kind of robbing Peter mm. to pay Paul. You're moving money okay. from vote 36 to vote 35. And what we've actually suggested is what 
military management made in their own submission. And mm. I think this but, 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 but take it point by point. Is the expectation too high from military management, from members of the Defence Forces, from Fianna Fáil for that matter, uh, or is it uh, too high in government's uh, estimation of its ability to pay, or is it something else, uh, perhaps that government isn't telling us uh, the truth. Uh, let's, as I say, take it point by point because the Minister said there in his response to you that the focus on public service pay increases has been on the lower paid and they've seen increases of between 6.2% and 7.4%. He said that by the end of uh, the current agreement uh, anybody earning less than €70,000 will be restored to pre-FEMPI levels and the restoration of uh, the 5% cut that there was to allowances under FEMPI will be scheduled under that agreement. No, well, you see, the, the, the issue there is that if you look at the history of Defence Forces pay it's, uh, the, and, and allowances, there's always been a concentration and a reliance on, on allowances, and that's for decades. When the recession hit, their allowances were savage, savagely cut, uh, as was their pay. Um, but their allowances, whilst public sector workers have had um, some modest increases in pay as per the public sector pay agreements. Mm. The Defence Forces haven't seen their allowances uh, restored uh, as uh, as other public sector workers would have had their core pay at a higher rate. But do you accept what the Minister said, that those allowances are, are scheduled to be restored? No, I don't accept that, that they're not scheduled because the, pre, the, the pre-FEMPI restoration uh, is, isn't scheduled to be paid. And you see, this isn't a question of high expectation or low expectation. Mm. It's actually a question about the future of our defence forces. Mm. Do we want to have the capability? Uh, do we want to have an air corps? Do we want to continue our peacekeeping duties? Like we have... Well, uh, directly contradicted storm, the minister. Whenever there's a storm mm. or a, a serious weather event, the government are happy to use the defence forces as a prop um, for photo opportunities and they're happy to go to New York and around the world uh, and swan around at international diplomatic events and actually use the men and women who are being exploited as the worst paid in our public service. What we need to do now is treat them with the dignity and respect. They cannot strike. They cannot join a trade union. When all, of other, when all other public sector workers strike, who do we rely on? We rely on our defence forces. They're our insurance policy uh, when something goes wrong. They're the people who go out when no one else will. And, and I think that's why there is a unique nature to our defence forces and that's why we're calling for what they do have in the UK and many other Mm. countries when it comes to uh, defence forces pay and allowances that you have an independent uh, body that uh, that actually addresses the unique nature of their pay. Well, that the was ruled that they, out very definitely yesterday. Well, and, and that was mm, and that mm. that's a that's a serious mistake because no one argues within the public service that the nature of the work of the defence forces, whether it's their service abroad or whether it's the fact that they have to conduct more dangerous duties or whether the fact they mm. are insurance policy when something goes wrong that they have a complex nature of allowances that actually reflect that. But why did Fianna Fáil uh, agree to sign up to PESCO, which obligates us to spend more money on the Defence Forces, but not on pay for the Defence Forces? Well, I think you need to separate the two. So PESCO... Well, hold on. When you're putting more money into the Defence Forces, but the personnel aren't going to benefit from it, why should you separate it if you're looking for the uh, pay of uh, those members to be increased? Well, actually, what what PESCO offers uh, is... Okay, first of all, you're 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 trying to match two separate arguments. Um, pay and allowances policy is one thing. PESCO is a and is is facilitated under the European treaties 
to allow Ireland to opt into specific training missions, which actually training and training op- operations. So, That's for example, if you take cyber security, which is a huge future issue mm-hmm. for our, lo- our economy, it would allow our defence forces personnel to collaborate and train with other countries around that. PESCO is, an, is a voluntary opt-in on a case-per-case basis mm. that actually protects Irish security. Um, and but we are required under that agreement, under European defence policy, to increase our spending on defence, are we not? But I, sorry, can I just say, I, I think if you talk to defence forces personnel, they actually want to see, um, they want to see modern equipment and training. Uh, they want to see uh, proper pay and allowances. I mean, a raise to the Okay, but do we have to buy more tanks for, before we pay people no, to drive nonsense. them? No, that's nonsense. No, that's just a false argument. No, it's not. That's, it is a false argument. How much, argument. How much uh, just remind me, is it 50 million that the defence budget is to be increased by? The defence forces budget is being, and a lot of that relates to, uh, some of it relates to uh, what some of the, the public sector uh, increases. No, under the PESCO the agreement specifically. No, not, not under PESCO. PESCO agreement is separate completely in that you have voluntary opt-in on specific operations on a case-by-case basis. So it's not a case of having to ramp up to spending. In fact, if you look at PESCO, uh, it, there's no budget. First of all, there, there, the, the PESCO isn't dictated, doesn't dictate budgetary policy in Ireland. The government has a discretion under the European treaties to decide whether it wants to increase or decrease spending in each line department. What PESCO is, is a voluntary opt-in on various training exercises, for example, where we can cooperate with other European countries on those issues. So if you take a serious issue, and I mentioned cyber security as an example, uh, if you take, that's a huge future issue for our economy. Uh, and I think it's, it's worthwhile that Irish Defence Forces personnel will be allowed to collaborate with other countries. And there, can, there could be a cost to that. But there isn't a, a you know, a, a, a kind of a, a press the button approach when it comes to PESCO. That's just factually incorrect, Michael. Mm. But uh, if I go and back I to a doll debate, if I go back to if I go back to a doll debate, criticise PESCO are the very people um, who were. It was no to Nice, no to NATO. They're anti-European, okay. kind of Euroscepticism. Okay, January, uh, January 2019, and I'll quote what uh, the Minister of State at uh, the Department of Defence told the Dáil. As part of our participation in PESCO, Ireland has committed to regularly increase our defence budgets in real terms. Yeah, so exactly. That's we're black and white. Par- we're going to be participating in exercises and in training uh, missions where we can collaborate on, on a voluntary opt-in basis. So, for, so PESCO has a, mul- an, a number of projects. OK, let me read uh, it again. As part, of our particip- as part of our participation in PESCO, Ireland has committed to regularly increase our defence budgets in real terms. Well, that, and, and, and I can tell you why that will be the case. Because, because it's part in, of our commitment if, to if PESCO. You, if, you, if, you opt, if you opt in to a training exercise, there'll be a cost implication for that. Over the and next three years. And, and obviously, as part of the participation in a training exercise, you will be partic- it will have a cost implication. But it's not a case of a participation. For example, PESCO will involve our, our military personnel actually being able to uh, 
you know, improve their training, their their own capability. They can bring... Uh, and we're going you know, to end up spending more money on defence budgets. The Minister said that last year no extra costs were incurred, but that that may change this year as capabilities are developed and acquired through PESCO projects. Exactly what you were saying. The bottom line is that we're going to spend more money on our defence budget because of signing up to PESCO, which is denying money to the members of the defence forces. No, that's not true. That's absolutely not true. The reason the members... Well, what would we do with the money otherwise? The reason the members of Defence Forces are not having their pay... What would we do with the money otherwise? Would we build houses with the money otherwise? Sorry, the reason members of the Defence Forces are not getting improvements to their paying conditions is because of the refusal by government to recognise their unique uh, nature and contribution and to address their, the issues around the... the uh, Paul Keogh yesterday said that there were some HR issues. He didn't recognise the absolute systemic problem. And on your question... I actually think it's a good thing that Irish personnel can have the best training and expertise mm. when they're participating in international missions. Should you think on the first step to a European you, army? Do you no? That's that. Well, you name the treaty that uh, you name the treaty provision that would allow for what you're talking about. The treaty provision <laughs> would allow for a European army. Name name the name the article in in any of the European treaties. Well, I'll tell you, uh, if you like, what Emmanuel Macron has oh, said. Oh, so you're, you know, you know, no, Mike, you see, this is... No, there isn't a treaty. The, see, exactly. So what are you talking about? You, well, you've, you, you, you actually, you're, you're after asking me about the European army. I'm after asking you, what is the treaty provision within the European... Uh, within the European no, no, treaty. No, no, that's not right. What I said to you was PESCO was the first step towards the European Army. The well, first that, step... The, fir- Euro, the first that's step... Euro, that's quite a Eurosceptic view. Well... Uh, and I know a lot of your listeners no, well, it's uh, a, who voted for pro-European MEPs uh, wouldn't agree with that view. Mm. I don't... Do you think Emmanuel Macron is a Eurosceptic? I, I don't agree with the European Army. I don't think the Irish people agree Do you believe that Emmanuel Army. Macron is a Eurosceptic? No, what I'm saying so, is... So it's Emmanuel, not a Europe... Emmanuel Europe. Macron can have a view on so, the European army. The fact of so the So it's not a sceptical view to... Uh, no, uh, it is actually, because a lot, of, a lot of the people who talk about that, it's to scaremonger and drive anti-European sentiment uh, in, in... No, it's Irish to protect context. the borders of the European Union. No, there is no treaty or constitutional provision that would allow for what you're talking about. And Irish people do not want a European army. Mm. I don't want a European army. I will uh, never campaign for that. And I think Irish people uh, would never vote for that. Mm. I would not agree with the, uh, the militarisation and a supranational European army, mm. uh, which, which but is... You, well, you, 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 you agreed to members of the Defence Forces under the so-called banner of peacekeeping to go into disputed territories looking for explosives, didn't you? Sorry, the members of Defence Forces participate uh, in peacekeeping missions across this world are doing an excellent job uh, for Ireland. And I think uh, to, to question their participation in international peacekeeping uh, is, you know, well, is, is an example I, of undermining... The question, the question is, is it peacekeeping or is Sean Barrett claimed to the doll that it was the first step towards the European army uh, and uh, that what all we wanted to do was play with the big boys in Europe like Emmanuel Macron. I, I, don't, I don't agree. As I, said, as I said to you two minutes ago, I don't agree at all with a European army. But I also I think it's correct that our, our Defence Forces personnel uh, have the best training, uh, have the best equipment to fulfil their international duties. 
uh, there is no. I asked you, and you couldn't answer the question. I asked no, because you, there is no treaty. I, I, I did answer you, the question. There is no name. treaty that I'm I aware of. You, exactly. So why are you talking about a European army? Because steps are always taken in advance of coming to a position such as drawing up a treaty. You, and what you, I said to you was, you it was accept, the first step towards the European no, I, army. I, I did I not say that there you, was a treaty. Do you accept? Do you accept that uh, if that was ever proposed? Uh, do you accept that? Um, Irish people would have a democratic right to block that. Do you accept that? Well, do they? Of course they do, because the European treaties, as they are, don't allow for it. So if it was ever proposed, mm. they would have the right to block that, as as they block, they've blocked other mm. uh, proposals in the past. Yeah. And, I think that's and they the, voted on them again. Well, I, I all I can say is I don't subscribe to that proposal. There is mm. rhetoric within Europe and within some Eurosceptics at home about that proposal, which drives anti-European sentiment. And it's important that when we're talking about um, you know European policy, we keep to our facts. Okay. Uh, and there and there and there there is uh, and there is no European army. And I I don't agree, ever, I will never agree uh, to that proposal. Okay. The fall member and we actually value. Our, our neutrality and our position on peacekeeping and the value we value the work uh, of our defence forces personnel and they should be treated with the dignity and respect that they deserve okay, I've run over time I have to leave it there but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on defence is Jack Chambers Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, Defence Force spending did dominate uh, doll business yesterday, as did home care help. And uh, if hours will be available to people seeking home help care for the rest of uh, this year, we'll hear a little bit of what uh, the Taoiseach Leo Bradker had to say about this in Leaders' Questions yesterday. Uh, and it may not be the case uh, that, um, as has been reported, uh, that um, that there are no new hours until November, uh, at least not in all parts of the country, but we're trying to get uh, a fix on that uh, in advance of the debate tomorrow. Uh, in terms of resources being increased uh, for um, uh, home help and home care, uh, the budget for home help and home care in 2015 was just over £300 million. Uh, this year it's £446 million. So that's a 50% increase in four years. And while there has been an increase in population in the last four years, while the population has aged slightly in the past four years, and while the cost of home care has increased in the past four years, it hasn't increased by 50%. Taoiseach Leo Vratker speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Let's uh, talk about this with Paul Bell, divisional organiser with the SIP2 Trade Unions Health Division. Good morning to you, Paul Bell. Good Thanks morning, for coming in. It was a significant welcome. increase in the budget going from mm-hmm. £300 million to £446 million. Despite that, the concern that the hours are going to be cut for the rest of the year. But the Taoiseach yesterday saying that may not be the case. Well, first of all, Michael, politicians are, are very good at using figures to justify a position that may not be, on, you know, may not be sustainable. Uh, it also masks the fact that maybe, and we are very convinced that the budget for home care provision has never been sufficient, whether it was in 2015 or 2019. This is a demand-driven service. More and more people are needing this service, whether it's in care of the elderly, whether it's in care of vulnerable people living in the home, because sometimes there's a huge concentration on it's only care of the elderly. Uh, But the the models of care that we are adopting in this country, and quite rightly so, is to try and care for people in their community as close as they are to family and friends and neighbours. And again, you have to provide services in that way. Mm. We, uh, as representing uh, home helps or 
home care support assistance as, as rightly now they are titled do know that there's more and more pressure on the service even the amount of time that's been given to mm. each client and that is a, a big concern this is not a, a luxury or a helping no. hand and sometimes it's essential and i use the word essential in the purest of terms in that people cannot stay at home unless they receive this service and the question then that has to be Absolutely. asked is what happens to these people if they can't stay at home they go to hospital they remain in hospital they become part of care institutions of some sort. Uh, or they end up in care institutions. So one way or the other. I mean, there's there's a very clear fact here. You know, the figures that we've uh, looked at through the research provided, it's, it costs €5,964 mm. a week to care for someone in an acute hospital bed. I don't mean to contradict you because you are right. They will go to hospital or to a care institution, uh, but not always the case. Sometimes it means that they just won't get out of bed. Sometimes it means that they won't wash. Sometimes it means that they won't see another human being from one end of the week to the other end of the week. Well, just I'll touch on that point, Michael, no difficulty, but it costs €160 per week with a a home care support package. That's Mm. what it costs. Mm. Now, they're the figures that are out there. The points you're making are very, very important. Firstly, people calling to home, community care workers, in some cases, are replacing family members. Uh, the, the, The Irish family... Is smaller than it used to be. Mm-hmm. There are people walking. There are people abroad. In fact, in some parts of the country, it's more acute than others. For instance, in the west of Ireland, mm-hmm. it's more acute because of the emigration issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the only people you're correct that, that these people will see mm-hmm. is the home care community worker mm-hmm. or the postman. <laughs> you know, that's it. Mm-hmm. And what seems to be missing here is if you go for the model of care that says we want to provide this service in the community, then you have to pay for it as a government you have to resource it by having the right mm-hmm. people available to it and you have to give a consistent service. There, there are some people receiving maybe an hour a day, mm. a half hour a day of care. That is not sufficient. Mm. And then there's more and more uh, issues concerning how this work is contracted out, uh, the quality of care is being provided, the support for them to be trained to the levels that are required. Uh, and basically, it's never been grasped with properly on the basis of, look at the Slauncher Care Report. A big part of the Slauncher Care Report says we must support more and more people in their communities. Well, it's been grasped to a higher degree with this particular issue and uh, I'm not sure if we're yeah. going into a, a general election in the spring yes. or beforehand yeah. or when it'll be and uh, mm. I'm not sure how interested people are in voting, but any time you go out to vote... yes. You're told by every political party, mm. we are going to help to keep people in their own homes, yeah. to allow them to continue to live at home rather than having to go to nursing homes or elsewhere. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, f- you know, that's fair enough. That's what's said. Mm. But there are two issues with that particular position, Michael. First of all, when people go to vote in elections on issues, unfortunately, health does not feature. If you look at the research, the opinion polls says to you, in the in the aftermath of any election, general election, local election, European election, somewhere along the line, that has not really factored into the majority of those voting. Really? And it, that, mm. that is, it's it mainly, because it doesn't affect everyone at the same time. Mm. Um, some of us may have elderly parents who need assistance. Some of us may have a vulnerable sibling or whatever mm. who need assistance in the home. But a care plan makes it very clear. This way of providing such service 
uh, with, the, with the government at the moment is not sufficient. It's not just about monies. It's about the understanding that that's the type of care that is to be provided. We have people at home, as we speak at the moment in this town, mm. who need respite care. Mm. They can't get that. They've been discharged from hospital. They're sent home. That's not an isolated case. There's no care package to go with them. But again, the hospitals are under such pressure to discharge people they will do everything they can to put that person back in the home with very limited support initially. Then the, the support has to be fought for. Then it may not be sufficient. So I, I did notice the way that um, Antishok did try to weave his way out of it by creating a slight fog around mm. what was going to happen. But at the end of the day, if you are one of these people needing this type of care, you are not going to be satisfied with that answer. There's you, too much you also raised a question of value for money. You were yes. saying the budget has increased by 50% yeah. over the course of the last 12 yes. months, but mm. the service hasn't. Is there merit in that argument? I don't believe there is. I believe that the service is under more and more pressure all the time. Uh, cutting the, the, we, our people are basically able to tell us that more and more hours are being cut back, uh, that they see this physically because they're, they're calling less and less to certain clients that they would have had. Uh, they're also maybe taking on additional clients uh, and trying to put them into the schedule. Uh, that type of thing, you're continually juggling with this. Then you have other interests. You have community groups involved in this, which are supported by the health service executive. You have private organisations involved in this as well. And then you have the HSE themselves. Mm. But this issue is not going to go away because we have to then say, in the budget for the health service, mm. it has to be very clear that you have to incrementally keep adjusting the budget to get ahead of the curve of the care that's required here mm. and the demand for it. And the care in itself uh, is very questionable if you want to keep people uh, at home. Uh, yeah. And uh, let's try and explain to people what we're talking about. We're talking about mm. people, whether they're young people who've been involved in an accident and need yes. to be cared for in the home or elderly yeah. people uh, or who child. are maybe suffering from yeah. Alzheimer's disease yes. but don't necessarily need nursing home care or a, a child with mm. uh, very high dependency needs. Yeah. Uh, and the packages that are, are available, uh, they vary. Uh, sometimes uh, you might get a, an hour here and there. Yes. You might get an hour a day. You might yes. get two hours a day. But the maximum you're ever going to get is three hours a day. An hour yeah. in the morning, an hour at lunchtime and an hour in the evening. That's that's the max. And the other thing that's happening, Michael, and if I may touch on this, there is a, 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 an issue developing for most families here in response to the hours being basically, mm. you know, blocked at the three hours mm. unless there are exceptional circumstances a lot of families are now paying privately for additional hours mm. because they need to do that they need that care I don't think that's been factored in and by pe government people will do anything they yes. can to keep people at home yes. uh, but you're working with uh, service providers who are on the ground yes. the Taoiseach says he doesn't know for sure whether mm. the hours are, are cut he says it may not be the way mm. it's being reported mm. I suppose that means it may be the way it's being reported what's your understanding well, are people being denied home care oh, packages I believe they are and they're, or, or they're being denied what they actually require remember something on Taoiseach defended himself by creating you know a visual of the figure we've increased by 50% our argument is in 2015, it wasn't enough. In 2019, it's still not enough. It's a demand-driven service. There are people out there, if mm. he took a chance to walk around maybe some of the areas in the constituency, uh, in, in, the, in the constituency like Drogheda or Dundalk or Navan, he would find that there are people out there not getting the service they require, even though they may be getting a service. That I, and some people will say, well, enough is never enough. But what's been recommended sometimes 
by hospital or by doctors or social workers cannot be physically delivered. For if it's delivered in total mm. to Michael Reed, well then it can't be delivered anywhere else for Paul Bell. Mm. That's the way it and works. And there's a cap of three hours anyway. And a cap mm. of three hours. Now, mm. are we saying that every single citizen who needs that type of care, eh, that three hours is sufficient? I think it would be very wrong to say that. Are we saying that it's sufficient for some people? Maybe mm. it is. Mm. And I'd say it probably is for some. But for those that, that it's not sufficient for, it has to be supported. And it's a growing area. But remember something, Michael. According to the World Health Organization, you know, we're going to be short something like 18 million health workers in the next 15 to 20 years. People think that's on in the developed world. So uh, it's you know it's it's here. It's because of the fact that more and more people have to leave home. They can't care for their parents. Mm. Uh, they can't care for children. They have to go to work. It's an economic factor. Okay, got to leave it there. Thank, Thank you, you indeed for coming into us uh, this morning, Paul Bell, divisional organizer with Sipju Health Division. Michael Reed on LMFM. Independent councillor Kevin Callan, as you've probably heard, has nominated uh, Fianna Fáil candidate Declan Power to take the seat that Callan won in the Drogheda Rural Municipal District in the local elections. Kevin Callan joins us now. A very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Do you uh, care to outline why or how you came to this decision? Good morning, Michael, and apologies I couldn't join you yesterday on the show. Um, I suppose after the results of the local election, it, it fell on me to come up with a candidate to put forward to the full county council this month. And I went through several options um, and several ones that did not sit right with me at all. One being a family member, one being a friend or a colleague uh, or somebody who possibly had lost their seat in the last election. So it took quite some time to come up with a decision. But in the end, the decision was somebody who would sit on the council as an independent for the five years, who would commit to this in writing, and who geographically was based in the Drogheda rural area. Because there is no such thing as the Drogheda urban or rural municipal district. There's only one greater Drogheda district. The entire process that the minister divided the area in two parts was a nonsense. And we will all now be sitting down around the one table for the next five years. Right. Uh, And why did you believe uh, the people were wrong when they rejected Declan Power? My view, Michael, would be that when my name was on a ballot paper, the other thing that was on the ballot paper was non-party. And to me, that is the key point in what I have to try to do in terms of respecting that mandate. So the, the law is very clear that I cannot sit in two seats and take two salaries. Now, I've already committed to people in both areas that I am working across the entire mm, But this is, not a, this is not a non-party candidate. Uh, the quota was 1,162. The mm. Fianna Fáil candidate got 261 votes on the yeah. second count uh, and yeah. was uh, eliminated. Uh, why are you nominating him? Because, Michael, I not only spoke to Declan Power, I spoke to other people as well. Other people were not willing to be non-party. And that's the key point. So if I did not do something in terms of proposing somebody to the full council... Well, Eamon Sweeney told us yesterday that he was the last man standing and you didn't speak to him. Well, I did speak to Eamon Sweeney. About taking your seat? Absolutely, and I met Eamon Sweeney in relation to that. And I communicated with him by telephone and text message. I told Eamon Sweeney my issue was that he was a member of a party, people had voted for a non-party and that I needed to have somebody in the council working with me as a non-party. He was okay. not willing to leave his well, political he, party. Well, he said otherwise, and we leave that well, to the two of you to thrash out. Leanne yeah. Soren, a Sinn Féin candidate, did you speak to her and make the same no. offer to her? No, I did not. Why? 
because, Michael, I was focusing on the geographic area that I think needs the representation. Clarehead, which came in from our D into the Greater Drod area, is an area which, in my view, requires an extra councillor sitting in that area. And that is a decision that I have had to make. And that is why you didn't speak to the other Fianna Fáil candidate, Richard Cooney, is it? Well, Michael, yes, it is, because it's the extreme area of the rural constituency. So, Absolutely. So you spoke with Eamon Sweeney and Declan Power about this. Who else did you yes. speak to? That, that's it. Right. Uh, and then when Eamon Sweeney said he wasn't willing to uh, take the seat as an independent, uh, Declan Power said he was and yes. you opted for him. Yes, and Michael, what I said to Declan Power, in the same way I said it to Eamon Sweeney, number one, the people voted for me, but secondly, they voted non-party. That, that must be respected. Eamon Sweeney was not willing to move on that. Declan Power was. Mm. He was willing to resign and he was willing to commit to myself and to Loud County Council in writing that he would be an independent member if the members agree until 2020. But you hold many of the values that Eamon Sweeney would hold, would you not, in uh, that uh, you're of uh, Fine Gael stock and F- Renew Ireland really was Fine Gael without abortion. But sure, Michael, Eamon Sweeney was a member of Fianna Fáil at one stage. Mm. You know, well, um, you've just preempted my next question, given yeah. how you're cozying up to Fianna Fáil. Where's uh, Kevin Callan going next? Kevin Callan's independent, Michael, full stop, and Kevin Callan has never gone back to party politics, if that's what you're asking me. Well, that is what I'm asking you, given given that you're uh, semi-party politics with the Independent Alliance, uh, but uh, I'm not sure how well that's going for you with Shane Ross. Well, I'm independent, Michael, if that's if that's where you're coming from. I've been independent now for a number of years. Um, in the past, I've been told I've, I was cozying with Fine Gael. That is not the case at all. I'm independent, full stop. I've already committed on many occasions. I am finished with party politics. I am an independent member. I've now not only been re-elected as a councillor, in my first local election as an independent, I was elected in two areas. Okay. With do, a very do, strong mandate. Do, do, do you expect your nomination to be accepted by the members of the County Council? All I can do, Michael, is put it forward. Okay. That's All the right. process that I have to go through. Okay, well, look, thanks for explaining it to us uh, this morning. Thanks for joining us uh, for that matter, Independent Councillor Kevin Callan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Declan from Dundalk was listening to the interview at the top of the programme with Deputy Jack Chambers, and he says that we fe- we hear so much in the media about the plight of the Gardaí and the nurses, and there seems to be a lot of sympathy for them when it comes to pay and mm. conditions, mm-hmm. but there just doesn't seem to be the same support for those in our defence forces. And he's glad to see this topic being aired. He feels that uh, members of the forces should be paid a proper wage because he believes they do an important job. Mm, I'm surprised he he thinks that. Uh, Mm. Not that they should be paid more, but that there is little sympathy for them because I I think an awful lot of people are quite shocked and amazed Mm. to think uh, that members of uh, the defence forces are paid so poorly that they have to sleep in their car or go look for welfare supplements and believe that it is wrong. And I think there's a lot of sympathy for them. I think so too, but Mm. maybe it's because you know, with guardian nurses, yeah. you probably have more dealings with them, mm. uh, members of the public, yeah. whereas you, you may not, uh, you know, with the Defence Forces, mm. yeah. you may uh, not have the same. Mm. And we have Garda representative associations That's right. that are able and capable and very willing to speak mm. publicly. We have trade unions representing nurses. And uh, when it comes uh, to the Defence Forces, uh, they have the representative associations, but uh, they're uh, slow to make comment on issues, uh, industrial issues. Uh, and that's why... 
they've established uh, the Women and Partners right. Group uh, so that they can speak out on behalf yes. of uh, the And members. that has uh, made a difference, I It think. has. It's certainly yes. brought it to public uh, attention. Another texture says the army is a waste of money. Mm. Uh, Denise from Drogheda then uh, phoned in and says that Ireland is supposed to be a neutral country and that's the way it should stay. We don't need to be part of a worldwide army. That frightens me, the thoughts of that mm. when we are supposed to be neutral. Also, our Defence Forces do great work abroad on peace missions and that's very important. I feel that they should be paid a good wage. I also feel they should be used more, especially in the cases of criminal feuds like we've seen in Drogheda. Okay. Moving then, have I one more on that? I do. Teresa mm. from County Mead thinks that it's awful that the Defence Forces are getting so little pay, especially with the millions being chucked into that diabolical hospital, as she describes <laughs> okay, it. And I think yeah. she must be talking about the National yeah. Children's mm. Hospital. Mm. She thinks the Defence Forces do a great job and should be paid accordingly. Yeah, well, it's terrible to think that people are describing what should be a state of the art, long overdue, much needed hospital for very, very sick children, diabolical. But I suppose that's as a result result of uh, the escalating costs That's and it. when we were told that that was it. Yes, uh, it's we, never it, Michael. We know it, that. It, we know no. that. Yeah, well, we learned it yesterday, didn't we? Yes. Mm. Uh, coming in then lots mm. of calls in relation to home care, Michael. If okay. I can get through right. a few okay. of them. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Uh, one listener says there needs to be a backup or a support ward for people who fall ill, who don't have family or any others that can look after them. They can find money for Donald Trump. Mm. She says uh, they can find money for this then. Okay. Uh, Nick from Fingal has an idea for senior citizens and older people who need a bit of help staying at home with jobs around the house. Unfortunately, there are still people who are unemployed and he thinks it would be a good idea if there was a system that they could volunteer to help out in situations like that. Even a couple hours a week to help older people would be a great addition. Mm, Um, We have an ageing population, says Carmel, and this problem is going to get worse. Most old people want to be in their homes. They don't want to be in hospitals Mm. or in nursing homes. But if ours are being cut. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello. 
how are they going to be able to stay at home when they already can't manage? Okay, well, as Paul Bell quite rightly pointed out, it's not just old people who avail of home care packages. Uh, It's from the very youngest uh, Mm. to the very oldest people in our society. Lisa uh, says she's focusing on the the older end Mm. of the scale. Mm. She Mm. says, you have very little support when you're trying to care for a loved one at home. In my case, our dad has Alzheimer's. We're doing our best to look after him, but it's an uphill battle. We're actually paying privately as a family for help because we are not getting enough hours. Mm. But the pressure financially is enormous and I'm not sure how long we can continue. Well, that really does make uh, the point that Paul Bell raised with us that some families uh, uh, have to uh, top up these hours because the three hours uh, or whatever is being allocated to them are are not enough. That's right. Paul Bell is right, says another listener didn't want to give name. Many people are not getting the care they need. A half hour or an hour is not sufficient in some cases sometimes it is but in some mm. cases it's not especially when a person lives on their own and needs help to be washed and dressed yeah. uh, and to have human interaction uh, which is one of the most important parts of it for a lot of the people very good to be getting all of those calls uh, we'll come back to them in a, okay. a, a moment uh, but we're going to break from uh, the calls for a moment uh, because uh, as you've been hearing a very contentious issue was raised in uh, the Dáil yesterday by a local TD in Meath West, Peter Tobin, who's uh, the leader of the AIN2 party. He accused uh, the Taoiseach of sweeping what he described as an illegal abortion under the carpet. Peter Tobin was speaking under Dahl Privilege. Peter Tobin, with the legal representative of the family whose healthy child was aborted at the National Maternity Hospital uh, recently. This is a desperately tragic case, uh, Taoiseach, and the family were falsely told that the child had a fatal fetal abnormality. They claimed that their child would be with them here today only for the actions uh, of the hospital itself. The family are stating that this was an illegal abortion. They stated that the medical practitioners who signed off on the abortion never examined the mother in question, nor even met with the mother in question in advance of the abortion. If this is the case, Taoiseach, uh, then it is contrary to the law that you brought in, and it is in fact illegal. The family state that they have been ignored by the government uh, with regards uh, their calls for an independent investigation. They said that they have had no real input into the terms of reference, into the internal review that you are planning. And they're also shocked by the allegations that have been made that the, uh, the medical professionals that are signing off on the abortions have also got a commercial interest in the companies that have produced the fatally insufficient tests in the first place. The, the bereaved family are shocked to hear also this week that the state claims agencies is going to indemnify the private company that carried out the fatally insufficient tests. They are furious, Taoiseach, with yourself for stating in the doll that this is a confidential issue. They believe that you are looking to sweep this illegal abortion under the carpet. And we're asking you here, uh, Taoiseach, will you change the law? Will you institute guidelines? And will you carry out a fully independent investigation? Um, And it is a private matter, and I'm not party to all of the information, uh, either from the family affected or from the the hospital's uh, side side either. Um, So I really don't want to get involved in commenting on an individual case, even one that is very, very sad, such as this, particularly when there may be legal proceedings underway. Um, But I do understand that the Minister for Health... um, 
does uh, want and expect that an uh, external inquiry be carried out in, into the facts of this. Thank you, Teacher Deputy Fiona O'Loughlin. Please, deputies. Deputy Fiona O'Loughlin. Thank you, thank you, and, uh, Ken. And the Ciam went uh, to Fiona O'Loughlin at uh, that stage. As you can hear, Patrick being clearly not satisfied and had lots more to ask of uh, the Taoiseach and uh, said that he had raised uh, the issue with uh, the Minister three weeks ago, but very serious issues raised by the Aintu leader in the Dáil yesterday, speaking under Dáil privilege. Just to go back then to some comments, Michael, um, in relation to Kevin Callan, we've a few comments in already, uh, Councillor Kevin Callan and who he's proposing to replace mm. or to fill that seat, yes. rather, mm. uh, Declan Power. John from Drogheda says, at least Kevin Callan picked someone who is living in the area and was actually brave enough to run in the elections. And I wish Declan Power the best of luck, oh, says John. Yep. Yep. Uh, I re- Sean, I respect... Kevin, that he didn't choose an easy option, Michael, like a family member or a friend. That probably would have been an easy thing to do. And when you look at parties in the past, they all co-opt people when they want to. Look at how many Sinn Féin co-opted during the last term of office locally. Mm Uh, Anne is disappointed at Kevin Callan's decision because she says he's uh, he's talking about an independent and a person needing to be independent. Well, then why didn't he select Frank Godfrey? He's independent and also ran in both areas, say, says Anne. Mm, well, he did explain that. Uh, he said he didn't yeah. want to nominate somebody who had lost their seat. OK, so that's that. I'll mm. go back to then if I can. We've had a good few uh, comments in relation to tips that we were discussing yesterday. Uh, why do people in restaurants need to be giving tips, says this listener? You don't tip the shopkeeper, the guys in the gas stations, the nurses in the hospitals, the carers in the nursing homes. Why are people in restaurants different from the above people? I tip no one. Well, I'd say they love to see you coming. There you go. Jane and RG. Who rang in with that? I bet you they didn't give a name. Did no, they, no, they no, didn't. No, no. They're probably too busy counting their money. It was actually a text. Mm. Um, but in fairness, that's what they do. And mm. that's, that's yeah. it. Everyone's entitled to do what they want. Um, but that's the point that's been made in okay. relation to mm. the differences, mm. the different mm. industries. Although I suppose you don't tip nurses, but it's, you, know, you, you might give them a box of chocolates or something like mm, that, wouldn't yeah, you, if you yeah, were a, yeah. or a bunch of flowers or something like that, and the same with, with carers. Mm. Jane in RD anyway says, I don't think it's fair that waitresses get all the tips, as the chefs do all the cooking, mm. and the wash-up staff provide all the clean plates, etc. Without these people, there would be no food to serve. Mm. Yeah, uh, and indeed, without uh, some of those people, uh, the food wouldn't appear at all, or it might uh, be excellent or terrible, depending on the chef, as uh, the case may be. But a, a lot of restaurants uh, split the tips they between do. the staff. They do. I was just going to yeah. say that. Mm-hmm. It goes to Not every, all of them. Yeah, not not some, all of them. Not yes. all of them. Uh, I think it differs from restaurant to restaurant. And I think that's why uh, a lot of people would agree that the restaurants should put their policies yes. up on display. Yes, yes. Well, look, we'll finish on that, Michael. All right, thanks for that. Marie and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us if you'd like to add to what's being said Marie is uh, taking calls now as is Ross and our telephone number is 1850 715 958 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the government won't uh, announce uh, the budget uh, for next year until October, but Social Justice Ireland has published its pre-budget submission suggesting that Budget 2020 should be designed so it is both economically sound and socially fair. These twin objectives are realistic and achievable, according to Social Justice Ireland, but it warns uh, they need to be underpinned by a clear policy commitment to achieving both. We're joined by Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Good morning to you, Sean. Good morning, uh, thanks Michael. for joining us here. You're suggesting that uh, the government will have an overall package of about €3.5 billion. Euro. That's correct. Uh, that's when you've done all the figures and looked at the, at, the, at the various things that are going to happen. Now, there's one caveat on that, one con- uh, issue, and that is that we're, we had to work this out ourselves um, because the government did not publish the table containing the fiscal space in its uh, spring statement that it puts out every year, and that's the first time it hasn't done it for, for quite some time. And uh, I think that that's not a good thing because at the end of the day I think most people want transparent budgets and they want all the numbers around the budget to be transparent and they want people to see they want to be able to see what's really going on rather than sort of depending on just getting a final figure of some kind from the government So you're going off what they said a, a year ago off the economic statement last summer that's right. They did a projection what the what the fiscal space would be this year. They're coming in in 2020 in last year's statement. Then we went and calculated the changes that have happened to that arising from budget 2019 and the various other things that have happened since then. And as and as a result, we kind of calculated in uh, what the whole amount of money is that was available to the government actually was and in, in that context we also factored in the public sector pay agreement that has happened and so on mm. so we, we like we've put in all the numbers that should go in we'd be much happier though if government department of finance actually published the numbers uh, in the sense of be transparent about what the actual thing is and and not when we asked for it we got a lecture about you know you shouldn't be trying to file work this out so far ahead of the budget in actual fact we think it's the opposite you should always be tracking uh, what what your likely uh, available resources are, but at the same time recognising that there may be adjustments that have to be made because of various things that happen. Well, as we've been hearing from the Fiscal Advisory Council, uh, there may be €6 billion in question that was collected in corporation tax uh, last year. The Minister has said he'll take that uh, on board, but uh, assuming he has around €3.3 I think you're saying, between that and €3.5 billion uh, as an overall package, he has to decide what to do with it. Uh, He can spend some money and uh, he can uh, give some tax relief to people. And we would strongly urge that there'd be a focus on uh, investment because I think at the end of the day uh, we we need to sort of deal with the gaps that are facing us out there. Like, well, we're doing very well with our economy and it's growing and our unemployment is falling and our employment numbers are as high as they've, they've ever been or higher and our population is rising and so on. All of these are very positive things, good things to be celebrated. On the other side, however, we're looking at social housing provision and homelessness and uh, not be developing we have we're not providing the the level of social housing that's required 
we're not dealing with homelessness effectively. The numbers continue to rise. We're not dealing with the sustained poverty and deprivation problem. Like poverty has not dropped dramatically. Still at 15% of the population, totally unacceptable in a country that's one of the richest countries in the world. Mm. Other major infrastructure deficits also exist in areas like water, for example, or healthcare, or mm. areas like affordable childcare. So, and we have high na- na- levels of national debt. And we have to plan for an aging population. Well, it's very good and not, not a problem. It's, it's, it's a, an issue that should be celebrated, the fact that more and more people are living beyond 80. Uh, we still have to plan for that period, for the services that are required in the infrastructure in that space. But so, is, it, is it a question of, uh, the being, of the government being damned if they do and damned if uh, they don't? Uh, because for a long time you've been making the argument in Social Justice Ireland that the government should invest in rural broadband, for example. The government is investing in rural broadband and is uh, being accused of squandering money. You said healthcare a moment ago, the government is investing in the National Children's Hospital and is being accused of squandering money. Uh, the issue, like at, at one level, uh, you have to ask yourself, okay, uh, the, the question, the original question you asked, which was like, are the are they damned if they do and damned if they don't? I think the answer is no, they're not. But what people give out about, for example, on the children's hospital is the sheer uh, escalation of the cost of it. Like from the beginning when a, a cost was put on it and then that escalated and it escalated and eventually there's this top uh, of 1.4 billion and now we're being told uh, that that could actually, yeah, yesterday as an Eroptus committee, uh, the, the budgetary advisory committee was actually told that that could actually rise again and you have um, a politician on this morning on one of the radio programs saying that this could rise to 2 billion by the time it's actually done. Now the point that people are annoyed by is not that we're building a children's hospital. That's a good thing. What they're annoyed about is the kind of thing that keeps going up and down like a yo-yo. I, I think at the end of the day, if, the way to say make sure that you're not damned if you do and damned if you don't mm. is to ask a simple question like what do Irish people want? And uh, you've mentioned already... Or if, or, or, or if you could get things organised in a brewery, as the case may be. Uh, well, they basically do it in a yeah. kind of, like... They, 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 at one end, people want an end to, to homelessness. They want the housing problem dealt with. They yeah. want the hospital waiting list reduced. They want child poverty to be dealt with. Do you think that people really want it? I mean, uh, you know, are, are, are they uh, just uh, making platitudes when they make these statements because if you look at the local uh, elections Fine Gael was rewarded despite of all of these things I think they got an extra 20 or 30 seats uh, and any uh, other gains went to Fianna Fáil I think there's an issue in that in local elections like that they're very I think local elections are very dominated by local issues and by local personalities and consequently I wouldn't see them as a kind of an overall statement of the, like what a government should do in a budget. I would ask a question though about like what, what people would support and what they wouldn't support. If you look at the last general election, uh, people uh, did not support the idea of tax cuts as the priority which was actually presented to them. They rejected it. Instead, they supported, quite surprisingly, and for some people, but not for people like myself who've been arguing this, because I think this is where Irish people are at, they supported an approach uh, that said we will put more money, uh, we will invest the money we have, it's limited, but we have a long way to go to deal with, to get the society back to where it should be, mm. to get our services in health and education, our, our infrastructure in social housing, public transport, broadband, to bring those kinds of things uh, up to kind of uh, EU level, or at least the Western European level, which these are our peer countries, the EU 
15 as it's known. And that particular, uh, we still have huge gaps there. And I would be strongly of the view that Irish people uh, would be much happier to see a decent healthcare service, a decent education system, a decent public transport system and social housing dealt with, a childcare address, rural broadband, rather than giving them a small amount of money uh, in tax cuts and tax breaks. One of the things they could Having do, said example, that, though, the party that pom- pl- promised to abolish the universal social charge ended up in government. It, it did, but it, it, at the same time, uh, it, was, it, it lost out dramatically on where it had been in the actual election. And I think they, then they didn't certainly get anything close to a majority. Um, I, I, I think in the, in the context of what we're talking about, mm-hmm. it's important to take a look at the, the various areas. That's what they should be doing. Um, and taking a look at the types of things that need to be done. For example, the thing that we haven't t- touched at all this morning is climate change. Like Climate change is a huge issue that most people feel needs to be addressed. There are some people who deny that there's any climate change happening, but mm-hmm. I think the vast majority of people now realize we're at a critical moment on this. There are initiatives that need to be taken in, in, in pursuit of a, a cleaner environment and dealing with the, 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 um, the, the, the climate change issue. Well, the teacher was asked this week to introduce a, a nationwide smoky coal ban, and he said he's reluctant to move too quickly towards doing that for fear of being sued by the coal companies. It is a long, long time since the original coal ban, uh, smoky coal 1990, ban I think, Mary Harney right, introduced it. Because Mary Harney introduced it, precisely. So, like, if it, it, that's in place, and it has been very successful, because I, w- I would have seen, dramatically seen the impacts, the very direct impacts of, the, of before and after that being introduced in Dublin. Mm, likewise, okay? yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, mm. the issue is, if there's an issue with whether or not there's a legal a danger of a legal challenge, do what is required to be done to eliminate it, for God's sake. Like, it's 30 years since the original ban was brought in and it was okay. But he, he, he's suggesting that if the coal companies sued them, yeah. uh, then the ban that's in existence in 29 areas uh, across the country uh, could be lifted. If they won, that you'd have to reintroduce smoky coal. I know. That, like that, that is the, the kind of level of daft politics like that this country suffers from some of the time. Like we need to face up to a simple fact. We have a problem on climate. Smoky coal contributes to that. It also contributes to people's health or lack, uh, you know, deteriorating health and all sorts of respiratory problems and so on. Mm. Do, what do we need to do to eliminate it? Then if that, even if it goes as far as whatever it takes mm. to do it, well, do you think people have years to do? It. They've had years to do, do it. Do you think people will thank any political party if they end up going uh, to the petrol pumps and get charged three cent extra a litre? I think the issue that, that this is basically going back with the carbon tax yeah. issue and, and whether you should go there or not. The the, the thing for me, I think, is that uh, if you're going to introduce a carbon tax then you have to deal at the same time with the losses that are being uh, uh, taken by people uh, who are vulnerable. And like, for, for, for example, people uh, who are in fuel poverty or people who are depending on rural transport, like in the sense of that they have no choice, they have no public transport access and they have to, do, they have to drive cars or whatever to get to work and so on, get around. Um, there's, there's poverty issues involved as well in, the, in that context, and these need to be faced. The, the issue that uh, 
government, a lot of the time it seems to me, uh, why the thing comes apart is that the government will say we'll introduce a, a tax on carbon and then on the other side we'll, we'll set up a committee to look at what needs to be done uh, to, to sort of mitigate the, the consequences of, of increasing the carbon charge or the carbon cost. And then the result is that the tax is taken, but the mitigation very often never happens. So we need to deal with this. Like, for example, it's a long, long time since, since, since we had to, we, not just the Paris Agreement, but way back to the Kyoto targets and way back to Rio before that, and the UN conferences and so on. And we undertook to, to achieve particular targets by 2020. Mm. We're not going to be anywhere close to achieving them. Why? Because we haven't been serious. Here we are in 2019, halfway through the year of the final year, and we're so far away that there isn't we're in danger not just of not meeting our 2020 targets, but of not meeting our 2030 targets. What that speaks very loudly to me is the government is not serious about this. It talks a great story. There's great rhetoric about it. But where is the action? Where are the actions that are to be taken? Sean. I'm sure we'll talk more about the issues that we haven't touched on today before October, but I think uh, the general thrust of your message to government is uh, to raise money more fairly and spend it more responsibly. Absolutely. Be economically sound and socially fair, and I think that would get that type of budget would get huge support from the electorate. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this Thank morning. You. Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. We'll talk in a, a moment about uh, new guidelines uh, for expectant mothers with uh, gestational diabetes. Uh, an introduction of uh, these guidelines has come as great comfort to Brenda and Michael Ryan, who uh, said this to uh, the coroner's court in Dublin this week and uh, told uh, the court about uh, the death of uh, their child in October of 2017. Brenda Ryan from Kells is on the line and a very good morning to you Brenda and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Before you tell us about these guidelines uh, perhaps uh, you'd tell us about Danny and uh, the four days uh, that you got to spend with uh, the child you described as your beautiful much longed for son and uh, the first grandchild on your side of the family. Hi Michael, thanks for inviting us on. Yes, our little boy, he was um, an amazing, He he had so much strength um, when we did get to hold him eventually, after he was moved from our lovely Lourdes to the Rotunda for his care, we did get to hold him and he was so brave and so strong and he kept us going the whole time we were up there. Um, because the whole time he was there, he's been treated. So he had a lot of wires and, and breathing apparatus and everything. And even the, the doctors were surprised by how good he was um, through his treatment. They kept, he kept surprising them. But um, unfortunately, at the end... Um, we 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 eventually mm. got to hold him, um, and we got to got to share him with our families. I take it uh, that uh, the four short days uh, that Danny was in this world are four days uh, that you'll always treasure. Always treasured, yes. He was um, our firstborn, as you said, and um, he he was so strong and so resilient to everything and everyone that was around him. Um, you know, Professor McCallum, who was treating him in the rotunda, couldn't believe how how strong he was but unfortunately um, he wasn't able for it after the amount of brain damage that had happened um, prior to his birth and during his birth that there was no comeback for him unfortunately and he he slipped away in his dad's arms mm. 
Uh, and the brain damage uh, occurred uh, because of uh, placental failure, was it? Um, well, there was some sort of placental failure that came up in the in the court, all right, but it was more due to um, those other factors involved in that. Um, that that led to that, which was exactly. that you, you, you were in labour and uh, the medics didn't believe you were. Absolutely, we were banished away into a room and I know many other mothers in the same hospital that happened to them um, we're not the first but we hope to be one of the last people where they don't listen you staff have to listen to their patients we're the clients we're there we have mother's instincts and we know that something is wrong and we need to be listened to uh, we begged that nurse that night um, there was something wrong and she's very no no you're fine you're not a neighbour um, we were having contractions, they were strong, they were frequent, I couldn't stand up. We were, and we kept being told that it's in labour. There was no explanation given for what the pains actually were. And I know this is happening in quite a lot of hospitals to so many women. But hopefully now with Danny's case um, and the media and all the support that we've received, that they will listen and it will be improved and this won't happen to any other families. Uh, and you were advised to take a bath? Yes, so... Um, we were in a ward with other women um, and I didn't want to stay there because it was upsetting for them. They were in for other reasons where they were in trouble with their own little babies and we wanted out of that room. Um, so the only thing that was offered to us was a bathroom in the corridor. So we were down there for so, so long that the water had gone cold twice in the bathroom. We had to reset. Um, and we were just left there. Mm. We were no painkillers. There was no internal examination. There was no check. Our water had broke before that. We have found out in the court that there was a simple swab that could have been done to check to see if the waters had gone. But that was never done. Uh, and Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital would have uh, one of uh, the busier maternity departments in uh, the country. What time of the day uh, did you go into labour? Was this day or night? Um, well, we had gone in Sunday morning for the induction and that takes 24 hours. So Monday morning there was still no... no there was still nothing. There was a... So they, they do another um, induction. So that takes the full day. So this is Monday night then um, after a failed induction, the night of, of Ophelia. So everything was, was, you know, my husband came up that afternoon when he could before the storm had arrived in order to be up there in case the baby arrived. Um, so later on that evening after the failed induction, we had said to them, the, the doctor said, it's very, very unlikely. We'll check you again in the morning, but we'll put you on the list for... an for a C-section tomorrow. So we were delighted. We were like, oh my God, we're going to have our baby tomorrow. After so long, we were well, well past. We're 10 days past our due date and we were delighted. And like, we were in a hospital. We thought we were in the safest place possible. The baby was, I wasn't responsible for that baby. And I thought he was in the safest place in that hospital. Mm. So we were, we started getting pains that evening. Um, for a couple of hours and they were getting more intense and more intense and after um, the waters broke I went back to the nurse um, and it was a change of shift so there's a new nurse on um, but she said that the handover was perfect and she knew my history and we spoke to her and said you know that we were having these pains and she said she'd examine us and um, she did examine and she checked his heartbeat and she said no no you're not a neighbour go and have a bath um, it's an option there to you if you want so we did mm-hmm. and that that was probably the worst thing that we could have done because we were left there and there was no checks being done on us. And we were so vulnerable. Like, having a baby and giving birth is one of the most stressful 
things in the world. It's so scary. And they need to be there. The medics need to be there. They're the professionals. And you believe that you were out of sight and therefore out of mind. mind. Uh, Do you think that uh, the hospital, that the maternity unit was understaffed at the time? That's why I was asking you what time of the day it was. If it was at night time in the run-up to the big storm, do you believe there was a full complement of staff? I know when we were downstairs earlier in the day, um, when we were being checked um, during the induction, the nurses were asked to stay on um, in case there was any emergencies or in case they couldn't go to home or in case the nurses couldn't come in the next day. So the hospital, it seems, had big plans for extra staffing. So we don't believe it was a staffing issue. It was that we were left out of sight, out of mind, as you said. And as you said, a swab would have determined as to whether your waters had broken or not. Uh, but before you got to that point, an ultrasound uh, may have changed the outcome for little Danny because, uh, as I understand from the reports, you'd scans at 28 weeks, 32 weeks and 36 weeks, uh, but uh, you didn't have a, a formal ultrasound uh, between 36 weeks and giving birth at 40 weeks. Yeah, as we went, when we went in on our due date, um, we were told to go, that there was no concern. Danny was absolutely perfectly healthy. There was no problems with our baby. And um, so um, we were just let go for another week. And we were brought back in the following week, a week overdue. And the doctor said, right, we need you in. Um, so the next available induction date was the Sunday. So that was the Thursday. And on the Sunday we went in. So there was no ultrasound done around, since in that time would have shown that there was something going with the placenta. And in the review from Drogheda since then that was done by um, the Rotunda team, they have they have put in an explanation or a suggestion that um, the ultrasounds are done and that we're not to go over um, and that um, sorry, I've just lost my train of thought there. Okay, yeah. um, that the ultrasound should be done. You, you, you gave birth at 40 weeks and nine days. I, I think uh, they're suggesting now that you should be induced at 40 weeks and four days. Absolutely, yes. And also the coroner has um, asked a review of the ultrasound reporting, um, to, which would show so much more at that late stage. Mm. And this is in the case, obviously, of uh, gestational diabetes. Uh, the brain damage uh, that uh, your son uh, incurred as a result, uh, that doesn't sound uh, like something that was obvious to you from what you're saying about how strong he was uh, and uh, how much you cherished the time with him. Yeah, we are so grateful to the Rotundas for everything they've done for him. They came down that night. We weren't aware. Um, I don't even remember the doctors telling me that it was a little boy. Um, I remember back up in the room and a nurse came in and she asked how the pain relief was and I'd never had a section before as her first baby, so it's very painful. So I had said, yeah, you know, it's quite painful. So she checked the morphine um, pump and she said, oh, I don't think this is working. So she called someone up and a man came up and, or a doctor came up and checked it and said it was working. And the nurse came back in to say, well, you and I know it's not working, Brenda. So the Rotunda team came up at that stage and my husband was allowed to see his baby for the first time. And then he demanded that I be brought down. So I was wheeled down in the bed and... Uh, they Rotunda spoke to us and said how, un- how unwell he was and how they were going to bring him to the Rotunda and do everything they could in their power. And, that, and that's, that's when you first realised uh, that his life would be limited. Absolutely. They said that, you know, that they would do everything. Mm. Um, 
But before that... But this was know, a shock to you, was it, Brenda? You didn't realise that... It was that, a shock yeah, because we yeah. were up in our own private room with a nurse coming in going, oh, they're very busy downstairs looking after babies. I'll find mm. out, I'll find out. And never, ever find out. And never explained to us. Four, um, four very long days, I'm sure, in one sense, but four extremely short days uh, and uh, you were denied a, a lifetime with your son. When, when, when did you realise that there was no hope for him? They know how to speak to patients. They know that patients hope and hope and hope. And they do give you every, every time in the world to come around to understanding what's going on. Um, and so it was Thursday that they had done another scan. They were going to bring him to Temple Street to do a final scan but they didn't need to when they had done something themselves. So they explained this to us. And at that stage, you could see Danny. He was getting tired. He he was having enough of this. He showed us his strength and his beauty. And at that stage, he had enough. So the next day was the last day we had with him. And, oh, I just treasure it. Me and my husband, we, we best dad. So Danny went off that, um, that Friday evening in his daddy's arms. It was the first baby that Michael had held, and he didn't really want to share him with me. Mm. <laughs> he had. <laughs> so, um, oh, it was brilliant. We were so proud and so happy to mm. have him, and it was just amazing. And the medical staff, you yeah. know, in two different hospitals, it's just amazing. You don't, you can pick what hospital you go to. You don't have to go to that one particular hospital. You can pick your hospital. My own mother, over 40 years ago, lost her baby. Yeah. And your doctor near and um, Our Lady of Lourdes, and her notes went missing. We were very lucky with an inquest. Mm. Coroner gave the truth and spoke up and has brought in these recommendations to try and help other families. We're not here to cause trouble. We're just here mm. to, to let people know and to stand up for themselves. And it wasn't the parents' fault. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't my husband's fault. It was the professionals that are supposed to look after us. Mm. And you know, it's something it's something that the family has to live with. Uh, we had a, a child death in my family. Uh, what would it be? My big brother passed away before I was born. Uh, and the reason I mentioned that is uh, I'd like you to tell our listeners about Robbie. Oh, Robbie. Oh, oh we were very lucky to, to, to get the gift of Robbie. And um, he's just over eight months old. And he's obviously the apple of our eye. He's a gem. He's He's what we live for now. He's um, He shows so much strength as well, and he's so happy. And you know there's someone there with him, helping him along the way, and it's just amazing. He's he's brilliant, and only for him and my husband and our families. And it's and, just great to have him. And he has a, a, an angel in heaven looking over him. He absolutely, and I'm not religious in mm. in a way that, you know, but we know that there's someone there to help mm. him along the way, and to teach him little tricks like Danny should be there and they should be telling tales and secrets and cuddling together at night in their beds but he has his little angel instead and thanks to the Cuddle Cut as well Beatacon and other charities it's been amazing to, that we got to bring Danny home for, for a couple of days it was over bank holiday in October that weekend so mm. we had him for a few days and there's um, a guy in the a caretaker in Corsair Cemetery who's absolutely amazing. Michael Costa won't be lost without him. Nothing was a problem. And, you know, he said anything to try and ease anyone's pain. So just the support that we have got um, from people that don't have training, like throughout his staff, our ladies' doors have training or should have training on how to deal with parents on the loss of babies. And 
it's this helps the other little babies. That's what we're here for. Danny has a name, he has mm. parents, he has family, and he was loved as much as Robbie and any other little babies people have. Brenda, listen, thanks uh, for taking the time to talk to me and uh, thanks uh, for telling me about both of your sons, uh, Danny and Robbie. Uh, and uh, uh, we do appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that uh, the decision to go public and tell your story uh, will have a positive impact on uh, childbirth for other women in this country. And thank you, as I say, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you very much indeed. Brenda Ryan and Kells. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. 20% of uh, the people who drink in this country binge drink every single week. Uh, That figure rises as uh, people's age decreases and under 35s drinking more uh, or more of them drinking uh, more frequently and binge drinking more frequently at that. This is according uh, to drinkaware.ie. Its uh, chief executive officer is Sheena Horgan. A very good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us, Sheena. Uh, What do you mean when you talk about binge drinking? Okay, well, binge drinking is having six standard drinks or more on a single occasion. And the important thing to note is what a standard drink is. So it's half a pint of beer, it's a spirit measure, or it's 100 mils of wine. So that typically means binge drinking would be three or more pints. And, And I think the binge drinking kind of message and conversation that we've been having increasingly over the last while has kind of almost got people aware of what they're doing and what they're consuming. And it might seem for many like a small amount, but it is significant according to the the HSE and the World Health Organization. So it's something we need to be particularly mindful of. Mm. And especially what we're noticing is a gender bias with regards to problematic drinking. So there's a youth bias, but there's also a gender bias. And given that it's Men's Health Week, you know, Drink Aware has a campaign to try and help men understand better what they're consuming, why they're consuming and how to to cut back or indeed cut out. And are you talking about people who have three or four pints on a Saturday night or are you talking about some people uh, who might have 10 or 15 pints on a Saturday night? I know, well, it's, it's actually, we're talking anything above the six, so mm. six or more, so it, it could be either or. And I think one of the kind of um, things that we really need to understand is we have the low-risk weekly guidelines, which are 11 standard drinks for female and 17 for male in a week. But also, while you might not binge drink for that, that's staying within the guidelines, if you binge drink just on your Friday and Saturday night, you may in total come under those weekly guidelines, but that is not a healthy way to be consuming alcohol. And that's really one of the things that we're trying to flag. And it's, it's a difficult message to get across because for many, you know, the feedback we're certainly getting is that it feels quite small. But having said that, you know, we have an online calculator. We have a thousand people going online every day to look at that calculator to try and better understand and calculate how much they're drinking. Mm-hmm. And that knowledge piece is really, really important because we know people are aware that they're probably drinking too much. We have, you know, huge figures with regards to the under 25s and even under 34s who feel that they should cut down. So we need to try and enable that. What risk is there uh, for somebody at the lower end of the scale? Let's say somebody who has three pints on a Saturday night every week and never drinks otherwise. Uh, What risk are they? It's a very very difficult one to answer. Mm. And and in fairness, you know, there'll be the likes of the the HSE and other organisations who would probably be in a better position to answer it than I would. But certainly there's, you know, we have the risk between alcohol and cancer is, is one that's there that's proven that's been talked about through the public health alcohol bill and stuff so that there's an awful lot of kind of also softer more implicit risks with regards to you know um 
general health and well-being, mm. um, sleeping, appetites and all of those kind of things. But I think something that's worth flagging is actually the reason why we drink. And we can see from the data that it's very much around a coping strategy. So it could be to cheer ourselves up, to forget our problems, to de-stress. And also in that social aspect of coping, so just to fit in. And that's the norm, really, that we're trying to redress. And it's why we use language like, let's change the trend, let's create a new trend, let's create a new norm, and one which is healthier for us. Okay, we have to leave it there. We're out of time. Thank you for your time and thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Sheena Horgan, Chief Executive of DrinkAware.ie, brings our programme to its conclusion today. Before we go, let me remind you there'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns uh, for producing, Ross Leahy for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling was here for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.